Today we have two readings, Acts 1, 1-9, and Acts 2, 1-4. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gather around him and ask him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's Pentecost Sunday, and that means it isn't Easter or Christmas, the two most familiar celebrations within the Christian church. Pentecost kind of gets lost in the anticipation for Memorial Day and summer vacations. So what is Pentecost? What is Pentecost? Well, Pentecost, the word means 50. It's the 50th day after the Jewish Passover. It was originally a, a, an agricultural festival. It was a name used by the Greek-speaking Jews for a harvest feast that was called in Hebrew the Feast of Weeks. And you see that in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. On this harvest feast, it was a time to celebrate the first ripe sheaves of wheat. But over time, it became less uh, focused as an agricultural festival And it became more associated with the giving of the law, the Torah, to Moses on Mount Sinai 50 days after Israel had left Egypt. So what are we celebrating on this Sunday? Since we're not farmers, we don't celebrate our first ripe sheaves of wheat that we have brought in. Uh, We're not uh, Jewish people who are celebrating their, their calendar of feasts. So what are we doing here saying it's... Pentecost, what are we celebrating? Well, on this day, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out on the first followers of Jesus. And we heard that read by Marcus already. It comes from Acts chapter 2. And it was this event that singularly launched the early church as a formidable movement within the Roman Empire. A little bit of background, prior to this event, prior to this day of Pentecost, the resurrected Jesus had ordered these first followers of his to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit came. 
And we see that in Acts chapter 1. In other words, it was not enough that these people had personally been with Jesus night and day for three straight years. That they'd heard his teaching. They'd been able to ask him questions. They'd seen with, his, with their own eyes him doing these mighty deeds. Turning water into wine. Speaking a word and the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. They'd even seen him bring people back to life. And they'd also been eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Not just the Jesus before he'd been resurrected, before he'd been crucified and resurrected, but they had seen the resurrected Jesus. They had talked with him. They had eaten with him. And you'd think that all of that would be more than enough for them to represent Jesus, to be sent out to announce the good news about Jesus. If anyone was qualified to represent Jesus, to spread the good news of God's coming kingdom in Jesus, you would think it would be these first followers who had seen all of this. But Jesus says... Nope. You don't have a chance without the Spirit. That's my paraphrase of Acts 1, 4 and 5. (laughs) So why did he say that? Why did he order them to stay there and say, no, don't go out until the Holy Spirit comes upon them? Well, here's why. Because Jesus knew they needed the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew these people needed, these first followers of his needed the Holy Spirit. Because you see, Jesus knew he needed the Holy Spirit. That's right. You heard me right if you're listening. Jesus knew that he needed the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus couldn't be Jesus without the Spirit's presence and activity in his life. Listen to what he says. These are words of Jesus recorded by John. John 5.19, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. John 8.28, again, Jesus is speaking, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. John 12.49, I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. John 14.10 Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Now granted, if you're listening to those verses, the Holy Spirit is not explicitly mentioned. But we know from Mark's gospel that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. So I think it's safe to assume that as we read Jesus' words as recorded by John, I think it's safe for us to conclude that Jesus knew what the Father was doing and he could do what the Father was doing because of the Spirit's presence and activity. It was the Spirit's presence and activity that allowed him to say these words that we just heard read to us from John's gospel. And if you're not convinced of that, Acts 10.38, Peter explicitly says so. He speaks about, and I quote, 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. There it is. Peter is saying the reason why Jesus could do what he did was because the Holy Spirit was with him. Jesus needed the Spirit. And Jesus knew his followers needed the Spirit because he knew he needed the Spirit. And Jesus knew that these disciples, these first followers of his, needed the Spirit in order to be able to continue what he had begun. Again, Jesus' words in John 14, 12. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. See, Jesus' disciples need the Spirit to be Jesus to others. And that's, what he, that's the task he left them with, is to be Jesus. In my absence, you're going to be me to others, and you're going to do it through the presence of the Spirit. So Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. Jesus' disciples needed the Holy Spirit. And so do we. We need the Holy Spirit. If we're going to be and do what Jesus has called us to be and do, we need the Holy Spirit. So there's this weirdly weird thing that happens in Acts chapter 2 in which... um, Well, at least it's weird to me, because I've never actually seen it, uh, where rushing wind like fills a building, and then there are these tongues of fire. Yes, like that's, is that weird? That seems, I mean, tongues of fire rest on people, which is pretty out of the ordinary. Uh, And then this thing that happens in the story, or at least in the chapter of Acts 2, where Peter preaches a sermon, people are saved, over 3,000 people. And then a group of people just decide it's a good idea to start eating together. I've been trained to think about stories in such a way that something happens so normally, right? Life is normal. And there's this trajectory that kind of leads to this crazy maybe weird type of thing that's going on. I mean, if you take movies, any comic book hero movie, there's this guy or there's this person who's very weak and frail, and it's like I'm telling the story of my life, and then all of a sudden something, <laughs> something happens in which they undergo this thing, and then they just start blowing stuff up. Uh, and there are fights, and it's crazy. Well, the thing about this story is it actually starts in this really remarkable place, at least in Acts 2, And then it just gets really normal. Tongues of fire land on people, and all of a sudden people are talking in weird languages, um, and this place is filled with wind. And then we get Acts 2, 42 through 47, and it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
It seems like something very normal is happening at the end of this passage when it began with all this spectacle and craziness. But it's as if Luke, the writer of Acts, is wanting to suggest that this, these are the types of communities and people that the Spirit wants to create. I mean, shouldn't people be waiting for something spectacular to happen? Shouldn't people be waiting for something miraculous to continue happening after they've had tongues of fire rest upon them? No, it's as if the Spirit of God is suggesting that this is the place that he wants to start. A place where people are listening to God's word, are praying together, and are sharing, distributing things among one another so there is no need. This is where the Spirit of God wants to start. Which raises the question for me, well, how is the Spirit of God actually connected to something like that? How is the Spirit of God a part of a community like that? Well, I don't know about you, but generally speaking, I live a life that's bent toward something like isolation, like I want to be alone, or I don't want to get close to people. A life that's kind of self-absorbed, that I'm more interested in my own thing. A life that's really marked a lot by cynicism or negativity about what I see or people I meet. A life that's marked by self-protection that I don't want to let people in. But it's as if the Spirit of God is actually wanting to kind of bend us in a new way. That the Spirit of God is given so that we might be people who are connected with one another, not isolated. That we are people who have an other-centeredness, that we actually want to be involved in one another's lives and not just be self-absorbed with the things that we want to do or the lives that we want to live. It's as if the Spirit of God has been given so that instead of cynicism, we actually have compassion for one another. The Spirit of God is given so that we don't feel like we need to hide our needs, but that we can actually be open and vulnerable with them. The Spirit of God has been given so that we might be a people who are sharing together in such a way that there is no need among us. That is remarkable. That is where the Spirit of God wants to start. Because the Spirit of God actually works against self-sufficiency. The Spirit of God has been given not so that we don't have to do, we don't have to need anything anymore. The Spirit of God hasn't been given so that we can do everything on our own. The Spirit of God has actually been given so that we can be for one another what we need to be. So that we can take care of one another. I mean, you ever think about the Spirit or like attaining the Spirit or getting more of the Spirit as it makes you like the superhero? It's the exact opposite. It's as if the Spirit of God makes makes it possible for us to say, this is who we are. And these are the needs I have. Let's take care of each other. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful thing to me. And that's counterintuitive. And that's the story in Acts 2 that I'm not necessarily expecting. It's this passage suggests that there's something holy and divine in us being together and listening to God's word and praising God and praying and giving to one another so there is no need. Which then makes me think, perhaps the Spirit of God means that 
we're participating in something holy and divine, even if it seems so ordinary and mundane. That there's more to life actually going on than what we often see, or what we often feel, or what we often think. That in the day-to-day stuff of life, something as mundane and often boring as sharing a meal with someone, that the Spirit of God is at work, and that that in and of itself is a sacred and divine moment. That the Spirit of God has been given so that we might be people who are together eating, breaking bread, and because the Spirit, Spirit of God has been given, that is sacred. That is beautiful. Because if the Spirit's involved in our communities, in our day-to-day life, then there's something sacred going on in the mundane activity of just being in relationship to one another. There's something sacred going on in, in our giving of ourselves to our partners or our friends or our kids. There's something sacred going on in that moment when we actually don't do the thing that we're used to doing or that we want to do. When we don't lay into someone or we don't criticize someone even if they deserve it. But we don't talk about that person behind their back. That, that simple, small refrain from doing that, perhaps that's a divine moment. There's something sacred going on when we hear about a story or we talk to someone and all of a sudden our heart breaks a little bit and we feel compassion and we reach out to that person and we pray for them. That's the Spirit of God and that's significant. Or there's something sacred going on when you have a friend who is broken and they've experienced some, just some difficulty in life, a loss or a sickness, and all you can do, because you don't know what else you should do, is you just sit silently with that person. That's a divine moment. That's the Spirit of God at work. There's something sacred going on when you really don't want to, but you say, this is what I need. I'm lost. I'm broken. I feel very lonely. It's really hard to keep going. I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And we're able to share, and we're able to say who we are. Maybe that's the Spirit of God at work. That can be a divine moment. Pentecost shows me that we've been given the Spirit not so that we can expect or look for or attain or work towards something spectacular to happen, but the simple fact that because the Spirit of God has been given, the things that we're a part of and doing are already spectacular. There's holiness in it. There's beauty, and there's wonder, and there's awe, because the Spirit of God has been poured out upon us, and that is true. I mean, how else can you account for the fact that over 2,000 years, we are here in this building together, a part of this weird, crazy, bizarre thing we call the church? And it's frustrating, and sometimes it's boring, and it's confusing, And it's really, really messy. 
But the Spirit of God has been poured out so that we are together and we are able to share in our broken and frail and redeemed and healed and utterly sacred humanity. That's a miracle. That's the Spirit of God at work. Thanks be to God.